fades, the word of God abides forever. Would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Well, God in heaven, we come before you now thanking you for your word, your inspired word. And we ask that you would grant us grace to understand it. And I ask that you would grant me grace to preach and explain your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're still in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be here for a while. We just began it. So let me read some more from chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now the next few verses from which I'll preach. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. As I have mentioned to you, verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek are one sentence. One massive sentence, which is, to be frank, a a nightmare to try and unravel. A nightmare in a good sense. It's, It's as if a puzzle you had that you're missing a few pieces. Have you? Some of you like to do puzzles. I'm not very good at them. I don't have much patience for them. But have you ever done a puzzle and you simply didn't have all the pieces? Now, since I don't do puzzles, make puzzles, finish them, whatever it's called, I don't find that aggravating because I rarely even start them. But I can imagine that if you're really into puzzles and you come near the end and you realize you're missing 10 pieces and it's an enormous puzzle, that, that you would probably grow a little upset because you're missing the pieces. Or anything for that matter. Have you ever gone to fix something and not had the right tool? Ever had anything go wrong and not have what was needed at the time? Clean shirt. Were you ever late for an appointment and had a flat tire? That's always a lot of fun. Have you ever been going somewhere important and had the car just putt, putt, putt and stop on the side of the road? That's always a blast. That's one of the worst feelings on planet Earth. To want to go somewhere, to need to be somewhere, not to be able to go there. When you're looking at this verse, you never know when it's going to end, but you, you marvel at it. And to preach through that many verses in one shot, especially the deep doctrine it is contained in here, unless you'd like to stay here until about 6 o'clock, it really can't happen. What we have to understand 
from this early part of the book of Ephesians is that God is sovereign over everything. That is very important for us to get a handle on. Now, most of us will say, well, yes, of course, God is in control of everything. Really? Do you believe that? Everything. Every single thing in this universe is under God's control. Now see, we who were Reformed and Presbyterian, we can be honest with ourselves, we can be honest with the world, because frankly, in our system of thinking, we don't have to shy away from anything. We don't have to do any finessing. The medicine doesn't often taste good. I know that now they try and cover it up with grape flavors and bubblegum flavors, but there was a time, kids, when medicine tasted like medicine. You knew it was medicine, and you were supposed to know that it was medicine. And if you had a nice grandmother, maybe she'd give you a sugar cube. The medicine here, I I can't sugarcoat it. If I did, I'd be a liar. The implication of these verses, when you unravel them, is that everything is under God's control. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That on one hand, that's a very harsh thing to think about. But again, I have to be honest with you. I want you to think of something that's awful in your life. Or something that has happened that's awful. I'm doing the same thing. I'm thinking of a few particular things right now. God had that all planned out. What do you think of that now? What do you think of that God? Now on the one hand, you get mad, don't you? Why did he do that to me? He can do anything he wants. We have to admit that. He works things all out according to the foreknowledge of his will, according to his good pleasure. He gives grace and he gives justice. You can't have both at the same time, can you? Unless you have Jesus Christ. You see, the justice that God gave unto Christ allows the grace that is in Christ to be given to us. That's what it means. Now, on the one hand, it is very harsh and confusing when we confront the fact that what we consider misfortunes in our life, bad times in our life, and we all have them. And let's be honest, some people have it worse than others. And I'm not talking about people in Ecuador and the Congo or any place. I'm just talking about right here in western Pennsylvania. Not everybody starts at the same starting line in life. There are some who would like to think that. But you know what? That's a lie. Not everybody is born into the same family. Not everybody is born with the same blessings Not everybody is born with the same gifts. Some of you can do puzzles. I can't. 
I can do other things that you can't do. Nobody can do everything except God. And later in the book, in chapter 4, which we're not going to get to for months, Paul makes the argument that when all the parts of God's body, when us, we, the people of God, are using all of our gifts as they've been given to us, then the whole thing grows and works. You know, when you have a headache, the rest of you feels bad too. When you have a stomach ache, it doesn't matter if you don't have a headache because you don't feel like doing anything. Now, if you have a stomach ache and a headache, then you're in real trouble. But all of that falls out according to God's plan and will. Now, that's comforting for us when something good happens, correct? We call people up. God answered my prayer. God heard my prayer. And that's good. That's perfectly fine. But how joyful are you when God says no? I'll have to admit, I don't like hearing that word from him. I don't like hearing it. But we have to trust that he knows better than we do. He created the universe out of nothing. He needs nothing. He does not need you. He does not need me. The fact that he would even create us should cause us to marvel. The fact that he would send his only begotten son to die for us should cause us to fall flat on our faces. Now, when we think of all the benefits that come from Christ, even though we're Presbyterians, we should be leaping and jumping in our hearts. Don't get up and jump around in the, in the aisles, but in your hearts, you can jump around. First rule of Presbyterianism, thou shalt not sweat during worship. But all joking aside, the benefits we have in Christ are unbelievable. Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, over a hundred times in his writings. And in this little short epistle to the Ephesians, in English it's about 3,000 words, he uses that phrase, in Christ, like 36 times. And there's other phrases that are very similar, in Jesus Christ. He's constantly talking about this. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean? It's mysterious. It's mystical. What it means is to be part of his body, to be part of his church, to be forgiven, to have all the benefits of being a Christian. And what, what's occurring in these verses is there's this constant wave of praise. You can almost feel it with Paul as he's, he's, he's chained in house arrest in Rome and, and he's overwhelmed with the grace of God. And there's three waves of praise, first with the Father and then with Christ and then as the Holy Spirit applies these things to our lives. We believe in a triune God. And each person in the Trinity has a thing to do. The Father did not die for you. The Spirit did not rise from the dead for you. Christ died. Christ became a man. Christ obeyed the law. Even though Christ created the law. 
It's a mystery. People often ask me about these things, and um, well, someone asked me a question in Sunday school. My answer was, I don't know, I wasn't there. I say that a lot. You see, Deuteronomy 29, 29 helps us here. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children. You see, what is, what is in the secret counsels of God? Just accept it. I mean, who do we honestly think we are? Some of you are excellent mechanics. Actually, almost every man in this church except me can, can, can fix stuff. And some of you, I honestly think if you, you know, wanted to, you could have gone on and been, seriously, rocket scientists. You could have. You could have done stuff like that. But even someone like that, when we put a man on the moon, think that impressed God? Now it impressed us. It sure got the Russians' attention. But it didn't impress God. That's what that, that psalm was talking about that I read. God's done all of these things. Nothing too small for him. Nothing too great. He does exactly as he pleases. He does as exactly as he wants. Now what this should cause us to do is to thank him. Because the benefits we have start in verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. To be redeemed means to be purchased back. To be bought back with a price. And the price was his blood. The price was his sacrifice. And because we have been redeemed, we have the forgiveness of sins. And we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now let's just ponder that for a minute. These are things that we say all the time, but we don't think about them. We sing words, there's power in the blood, there's power in the blood. And that's true, but we need to really think about it. There's power in the blood. Think about the Passover ritual. The first one. The Hebrews are in Egypt. They have been enslaved for over 400 years. God has laid waste to Egypt, the mightiest kingdom on the earth at that time, made fools of their pantheon of gods. And now he gives them this crazy ritual to do. Pick out a lamb. Make it perfect. Kill it a certain way. Cook it a certain way. And then take some of the blood and put it on the, what we would consider the frame of the door. Why? Because bad things were going to happen that night. The angel of death came over and wiped out the firstborn in Egypt. The blood covering the door was a sign to the angel to pass over the house, to pass by the house. Paul tells us that Christ is the Passover lamb. It foreshadowed him. The Jews didn't figure that out. You would think during Christ's trials that the high priest, who was the only one who entered the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you would think that he would have at least known better. Their eyes were blinded by their own greed. The Sadducees said, if if we let this man keep going, the Romans are going to come and take our place. What they meant was the temple. 
the temples where they brought in the tithe. The Pharisees didn't like him because they couldn't beat him in a debate. He knew more than they did, even though he didn't go to their schools. The Sadducees didn't like him because they realized this is a man who's much holier than we are, and he's causing trouble, and the politics are going to get nasty with the Romans, and we don't want nasty politics with the Romans, especially with Pilate, who was incompetent, got transferred to Jerusalem. If you're a Roman governor at that time, and you get transferred to Jerusalem, you think that's a promotion? No, that's like getting sent to the Arctic Circle. You've messed up so badly, we're going to send you down there. Everybody messes up down there. And he did, but good. Washed his hands of it all. There's power in the blood. We say that we're forgiven. But we always forget that it's according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. When we say somebody's rich, what does that mean? Now, Christ talked about rich people in the gospel reading, didn't he? Scary words. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Um, That's as plain in English as, as I can possibly make it. Those who have riches in this world have got to be very, very careful. You young people, be very careful. Very careful. Very careful. Of greed. And no matter who you are today, no matter your economic status, if you're here now, then by biblical standards, you definitely are considered rich. You have food. You have clothing. You have transportation. Should I ask you if you have a computer on the internet? Did you throw any food out this year because it went bad in the fridge? Poor people don't do that. We're rich. By earthly standards. By historical standards. Look at this building. It's amazing. Going on 200 years old. It's not a cathedral or anything, right? There's no marble floors. Do you know how many people on planet Earth would walk in here and say... Some mansion. There's people in Presbytery who, who have told me, oh, when I come here, it feels like a church. Well, it feels like a church. It's a wonder to behold. And what is it? Wood? Glass? Blaster? Brick? In other words, it's stuff that God made. And our forefathers built it so that we would have a place to worship. And we're still here because of God's grace. I said in Sunday school that approximately 4,000 churches close each month in America. We've been here since 1799. Now the building's only been here since 1842. But we're only here because of God's grace. If God left it up to us, and I'm just speaking for the, the current session... But if, but if the history of our church had been left completely in the hands of any of the sessions in charge, believe you me, knowing men as I know them, even though I didn't know anybody from 1820, I would run it into the ground. It's God's grace that we're still here. So the riches of His grace that we have all these things, and the most important is the forgiveness of our sins. 
There's nothing else that really matters. Do you have the assurance that you've been forgiven? Now, assurance isn't necessary for salvation, but it is very comforting. Here's how you can know, because God said it. That's what believing is. You know people in your life that are trustworthy. They tell you something, you believe it. You also have people in your life, probably, when they say something, you say, hmm, let's just wait a moment. Let's just see if that fairy tale comes true. And then we find ourselves usually somewhere in the middle. But when God says something, right? it's the call to worship for this month. I'll read it again. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, the kings of the earth, when they hear the words of your mouth. Every Sunday you come and you hear the words of God's mouth, not from me, but because I'm preaching the word. Now, those riches of his grace, God, the verse 8 says, he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, this does not mean that when we got saved, that God gave us wisdom and prudence. He does do that. But this is talking about God's wisdom and God's prudence. That word prudence has a bad reputation today. He's a prude. It's a put down, right? No, it's not. It's a compliment when used properly. It means he's prudent. She is prudent. It means to be wise. The prudent person passes by danger. Now, none of us are prudent all the time. We all go places we shouldn't. We all do things we shouldn't. That's called being a sinner. It is wise and prudent to then confess your sin and repent of it. But God's wisdom and God's prudence are, are, are limitless. And he lavished his grace upon us in his wisdom. Now, I want you to think about yourself just for a moment. If you were God, would you save you? If you were God, would you save you? Would you think it wise? Do you think you're a good candidate for salvation? You're a trophy in God's case? No, none of us are. That's the whole point of it. None of us deserve it. It's unmerited. That's what grace is. It's getting something wonderful that you don't deserve. If you think that you deserve Jesus' blood, then my friends, you don't have the power of the blood. If you believe that you don't deserve the blood, but you believe that the blood is yours, that's called believing. That's called grace. That's called being justified in the sight of God by your faith. We're saved by grace, but we're justified by our faith. And in this wisdom and prudence, God, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Now, in the Bible, a mystery is not a whodunit. In the Bible, a mystery is something that was previously unknown that has now been revealed. That's what the word means. When we think of a mystery, we think of, well, if you're my age, you might think of Columbo or something like that. Even though that show wasn't a mystery because you always know who did it in the beginning. You always knew. But you still watched the whole hour show. Or a whodunit. It was always the butler, right? The butler did it. Whodunit. A mystery in the Bible is something that people in previous years did not know. 
And what Paul is asserting here is that the mystery of his will has been made known. Now that's not saying everything. What that's talking about is the person of Christ. That the Christ has come. That the Christ has come. That the Christ has redeemed his people. That the Christ was buried in the earth. That the Christ ascended on high. And that he is going to return. We're one day closer to being out of this world. Do you, are you in, that in love with this world that you want to stay here that badly? Would it be good if Christ came back right now? Would you be happy? You should be happy. You should also be a little, little nervous. That judgment seat of Christ thing that Paul talks about doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. And Paul got that phrase by thinking about the Roman judgment seats. I just read about that in the book of Acts. I sat in the judgment seat. It's a court. One day we're going to appear in God's court. That you should not be looking forward to unless you're a Christian. Because then the blood, the blood will be the answer for your sins. The blood will be on the doorframe of your, your soul. And the judgment will pass over you. You can only have two things. Grace or justice. Both are powerful. One is very pleasant. One is distinctly unpleasant. You have to believe that the justice you deserve was given to Christ. And that the grace you don't deserve has been given to you. I can't emphasize that enough. I can't say that enough. Because we need to hear it over and over and over again. Are you, are you trying to work your way into God's good graces? Have you ever heard that phrase? Work yourself into someone's good graces. That, that's illogical. Works are works. You work, you get wages. Grace is a gift. Someone gives you something. You don't earn it. You can't work for grace. It's impossible. It's something you receive with open hands. And the whole point of all of this is that at the dispensation of the fullness of times, and that meant when Paul was writing, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both are which are in heaven and on earth in him. What this is talking about is that now, since Christ has come, his reign has started. Jesus is king. Do you believe that? Or do you think the devil is in charge of this world? The devil is not in charge of anything. The devil's not in charge of his own soul. The devil's not in charge of hell. That's Hollywood. God is in charge of hell. God is in charge of his church. Christ is on his throne. Go home and read 1 Corinthians 15. He is seated. What did you just say? Seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he's waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. That's degrading language. Christ is waiting. What do you think he's waiting for? He's waiting for us to kill the sin in our lives. Not that if we get real, real good this week, he's going to come back. 
So that's all pre-planned. I don't know when he's coming back, but we had best be ready. You only get one shot. Do you believe in the riches of his grace? Do you believe that? No matter what happens in this life, the riches of his grace, the good pleasure of his will. If you're here today and hearing this, then that means that from all eternity, God wanted you to actually hear what I have to say. I cannot tell you how terrifying that is for me. Somebody mentioned, uh, well, I I was up till one o'clock. So, what's one o'clock? Saturday night. Three. Not going to go to sleep before that. It's not going to happen. I can go to bed, but I'm just going to lie there looking at the walls. From all eternity, God wanted me to just say that. I am sweating now. And it's cold outside. I'm sweating. Because I'm going to be held accountable for every single word. Every single word. And you'll be held accountable for how you hear and how you speak and how you do. How will you do with that? Not well. Neither will I. That's why we need his grace. Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. It really is just that simple. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the riches of your grace. And we ask that you would grant us a deeper understanding of truly how amazing it is. In Christ's name, amen.